0: Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Keith Townsend. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. We have with us here today Dr. Jay Metz, Technical Director of System Design at AMD and Chair of system of SNEA Board of Directors. Dr. Jay has been on a show before, and he and I were at Storage Developer Conference last couple weeks ago back, and uh, SNEA also presented at Storage Field Day 26, which I attended. So, Dr. Jay, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what was your most interesting takeaways from the conference?
1: Sure. Thanks. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, so my name is Jay Metz. I am a uh, storage and networking guy, uh, predominantly storage networking, I should say. And um, I basically have worked in the no man's land of storage and non-storage companies for pretty much my entire career. Um, but it's I am pretty also much the IT
0: chair. universe, right? <laughs> I guess so. I guess that's one way to put it.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the the thing is that the storage often is the redheaded stepchild's redheaded stepchild, as I like to say. And, uh, and so- you know, the, the funny thing is that, you know, storage is one of those things that people tend to think about as kind of a necessary evil, you know, that all you have to do is store a bit for me. And you're, you know, what do you have to do? It's not a big deal. What's a big, what's the whole point? What's a big, what's the problem here? You know, um, so you know, what I do at, uh, at AMD is um, I am, so I am hired and I'm, I'm working to kind of coordinate a company uh, with uh, with the team that I work with to kind of move beyond the component side and into a systems approach where we talk about the relationships with the different components. And, and storage is a wonderful um, method to do that because data is, you know, the the lifeblood of any data center or any any kind of system whatsoever. And so having these pieces work together and those relationships between the components uh, is where I where I tend to thrive. So that's what I do for for the organization, and then I also work um, as the chair for SNIA, um, you know, the storage uh, industry association. That um, you know, we, we primarily focus on uh, not only standards development, but also education and, uh, and tradecraft in helping people understand, you know, the futures of storage, working on different new developments and uh, the storage developer conference, which SNEO hosted. Uh, we saw all kinds of new technologies, everything from, you know, memory movers, uh, something called the Smart Data Accelerator Interface, which was highlighted in uh in, in the storage field day, as well as um, DNA storage, which was also highlighted in the storage field day, and CXL computational storage, you know, the the you know the the work being done in, um, you know, for uh, SMB, we had plug fests, you know, it was just. All things storage, and, and a lot of the, thing, the people that were involved are just true storage geeks, and and very developed uh, for um, for that kind of that kind of uh, personnel, that kind of audience. To so, take the Flash Memory Summit and and, yeah. and just really go deep into the depths of the contents that are there. That's I would what we I do.
0: would say you know like I I didn't because I was at Storage Field Day, uh, I didn't uh, attend a lot of sessions, but it seemed like they were a little less technical than the normal. Maybe it was just the sessions that I looked at, uh, you know, in the past when I've been there and quite frankly, it's been quite a while since I've been there. So uh, maybe lot, that
2: was the conference for me. The, <laughs> the... <laughs> yeah, a
0: lot more, a lot more technical, uh, stuff was discussed. I mean, you know, like file systems and things of that nature. Uh, but maybe I missed all that. Right. Tell me I missed that. Dr. J.
1: You definitely missed it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to know. So, uh, you know, a couple of things that you guys talked about at, um, storage field. Let's talk DNA storage. I mean, where the heck is that? I mean, the guys seem to think that, you know, they're, they're at a point where they can store gigabytes of data and, and they're scaling up to terabytes.
1: And, uh, Oh Oh, yeah. I mean, so this is, this is a long game, right? There's no, there's no short-term thing here for for this kind of, of work um, and they've got a lot of stuff that they're working on that that still are players to be named later but the but they've really only started recently uh, in in the grand scheme of things it's only a couple of years old and they only joined um, SNIA last year uh, where where they became a technical technical affiliate so the um, the uh, the issue here is that if you're going to be thinking about these things and you're going to be working on the different hardware and software layers, not to mention the, the different protocols for this, it's it's one of those um, elements of the actual capacity is pretty irrelevant. Whether you're talking about um, you know whether you're talking about gigabytes or terabytes, that's not nearly as important as the persistence over time. Right. So so well, uh, it's yeah, a starting maybe. point. Maybe.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's certainly, you know, persistence is certainly a key to any storage. Right. I mean, but nothing's going to persist. Well, nothing besides DNA is going to persist for thousands of years, let's say. But. Uh, access and, and, and you know, gigabyte, you know, we're we're talking terabyte. I got a terabyte on my damn laptop, let alone my iPad. And, you know, mm-hmm. it seems like 600 gig is gone without even thinking about it.
1: So, well, I mean, capacity ter- is
0: important.
1: No, you, you, yes, you, capacity is important for the actual implementation and the functionality of putting it into practice. Without question, absolutely. But in terms of of where the focus is right now, the capacity will come right oh, it's, it's one of those things where if you do this right the capacity is going to come the, the the methods and the technology are pretty blunt force trauma at the moment There's not exactly a surgical precision when it comes to the capacity side because the real focus is being done on the level of persistence over time um and so i i didn't mean to minimize the fact that capacity you know it doesn't have significant role to play in time but the, the purpose here specifically is the you know, the, the fact that they're looking at creating a method of of, of encoding, decoding, searching, moving, and uh, prioritizing DNA-based permanent storage. And the capacity will eventually start to to come over time because you, the archiving part of it is is obviously key. So having massive amounts of capacity is sort of a, an assumption at this point.
2: So, Dr. J, is the primary use case mainly for the resilience and arch? Uh, the an archive being that primary use case? Or, you know, we had someone on, I think, Ray, last year, and we were talking yeah. in detail about this. And uh, is replication more of a uh, a use case for a DNA based storage?
1: I think. Well, you're, so replication is part of the process by which data is made resilient in DNA storage. So, can you be a little bit more specific? Which so when,
2: when I say when I think of replication, I think more of like, application yeah. availability in the uh, and the ability to you know long term. Let's you know abstract like DNA and the protocols from it. When I'm talking to customers about replication. It's mainly to put data where it needs to be for either business continuality or from a uh, performance perspective. So, you know, this is why we love object storage, because replication is inherent in in object storage. And it also benefits for resiliency, et cetera, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. from, I guess, the better way to to state the question is, what's the in-application for uh the resiliency that dna storage provides
1: i believe is probably smart to think of it as sort of a write once read almost never
0: yeah yeah archive deep deep
1: archive yeah we're 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 talking like glacier (laughs) levels of access and the only thing that you really need to make sure is that the same bit is going to come back when you need it Right. So this is so for, from an application perspective, you're not going to see this as a as a means of, um, you know, mission critical storage at all. Right. This is that's not what this is. We're not talking about application access on a, on a real time basis. Yeah, um, yeah, so as critical. long as the replication is there for, for security uh, of the security of the bit, I should say, Um you know, that's the intrinsic to of the
0: storage medium. It's not necessarily replicating data across vast distances or anything like that. Uh, you're replicating within the DNA storage cell, I guess, in order to make sure you've got sufficient copies to do reads, and mm-hmm. to last a long time.
1: Yeah, and I think the other part of it, too, is that the locality of it may actually have some sort of influence on the replication um, policies, and, and when you start to tease that out a little bit the thread will draw you into okay well how do we find the data that needs to be put into any one particular place so the searching becomes a critical element and and then so how do we do the data movement and how is it does it is it which where do you actually start to have the process of reconstructing that data somewhere else and what are the methods by which that happens and those are all things that the DNA storage alliance um, are working on
0: you mentioned search. Why, why do you think search is such an... I mean, most archives don't have a search requirement per se, I guess. I, I guess it's there all, all along, but it's not something that's specific to the archive.
1: Well, there is no concept of things like inodes in DNA storage. right? Uh, so There could be. It doesn't necessarily have to be nothing
0: like that, but there could be.
1: Oh well, the, 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 whether we call it an inode or we call it something else, the the, the structure of the way that inodes work in uh, in drives is not the same way that they would work in DNA. So the the, the method has to be recreated and uh, reexamined. Um, so, so you're saying that
0: they have to have some sort of way of of uh, indexing the data that's sitting in this DNA. I'll call it device for lack of a better word so that they know where the data is or at least what the data is and, and that sort of stuff. I mean, uh, the sessions at, at storage field, they talked a lot about uh, I'll call it ECC and having, you know, like uh, informational tags in front of uh, every segment, I guess, which might be considered a block in in a normal storage device Mm -hmm. that says this is block number 25 of, 2018 of of, uh, this particular file entity or something like that.
2: Yeah. And I I guess if we're talking archive, let's bring it back to kind of my level in understanding of storage and how storage works. If you're as old as any of us and you've had to restore anything from tape and you didn't have a catalog of what was in the tape, like I've had projects that I've been called in and literally just given a box of tapes, and said, restore the exchange data from these tapes without knowing what backup software that was used to back it up. Ouch. Just simply, here are the tapes. Ouch. That you know that 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 is you know with hard drives, it's you know it's quite different. I, I connect a SAS drive to almost any system. It's going to be able to read the files, It's going to be able to identify the file system on the uh, on on the device. And then you know, I just have to install the the drivers for that file system in my preferred OS. When we're talking about deep archival, you know, think twenty years from now, thirty years from now, someone's given a a, a proverbial box of DNA and said, "Read the the data that's on this on this DNA device." Store and oh. exchange
0: data from this DNA <laughs>
1: device. Yeah. Nope, true. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. oh, but but uh, what I'm what I was. What I was what I was trying to say is that that we're not talking about removing the functionality, right? We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about because of the nature of the medium involved, then what happens is that the methods by which you arrive at that functionality has to be redefined.
2: So we're talking about how data is read, because of nature, how data is read from DNA. There is the processes we use to the track where the data is in a DNA strand is not, Effective for this medium.
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, so, I, and and I do appreciate you giving me the opportunity to try to clarify what I'm trying to say here, um, <laughs> you know, because, it, well, it, it, let's face it, the propeller spins the other way once you start getting to this level, you know. Uh, we're, we're talking about biochemical engineering here, to, to not just storage. Right. All right, and the all all. Uh, and, hey, I am not a biologist and I'm not a chemist, so um, you know. I don't when think it comes anybody
0: up, on the call is actually. I, yeah, exactly. So I have me. to be very
1: careful what promises I'm making. <laughs> right. But I mean, you know, all, all of the things you're talking about, you know, is is where we, you know, uh, where we have to try to get everything right because. You know, as you know, in storage, we only have one job and that's give me back the right bit that I asked for when I asked for it. Right. That's the job. And the, the nature. And I think one of the lessons that we learned, you talk, you bring up, you know, tape, Keith, you know, I think one of the lessons that we learned is that we don't treat tape exactly the same way, way that we treat, um, you know, spinning drives. And we don't treat spinning drives exactly the same way that we treat NAND. And we don't treat NAND the same way that we treat NOR. So, Nobody uses NOR for a reason, right? Because the nature <laughs> of the medium actually affects the, what happens with the storage itself. So all of these systems, all these processes that have to be put in place, that it, it, that's, and that's what makes storage actually quite interesting and fascinating um, to me because of the fact that, you know, the storage is a system. It's not just the medium. It's not just the way that the, you know, the bits are laid out. It's It's a process by which all of those things are kind of packaged together so that you can do your one job. And that means finding the right bit and in a DNA, you know, chemical, biochemical solution. That's, that's, that's beyond my ken. I got to be honest with you. I don't, I, I couldn't sit here and tell you how a searching function for the correct DNA strand was supposed to work with any confidence whatsoever. I just know that that's one of the things that they have to work on for creating it in a way that anybody can do data structure storage using DNA and, adhere to the same principles for what this is supposed to mean, right? Because if you've got vendor A and vendor B and vendor C and they've got different ways of encoding and finding data, that's just not going to work too well. Same thing as any other storage device.
0: Yeah, Uh, I I think they have some way of tagging the the block with some information that can be matched and that's to some extent how the searching works. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah. It's uh, all well, kind of
0: a fog in, in my biochemical soup up there someplace.
1: Yeah, my own my, my, our own biochemical soup. Exactly. Yeah, yeah the gray matter, a gray. Maybe
0: neurological soup. I don't know what you'd call it.
1: Um uh, now we start getting into
0: behavioralism. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a pretty interesting, it was a pretty deep discussion about how you know they're going to try to protect the data. I didn't actually tell us what the ECC code was going to be, but They they did mention that ECC was going to be existent, and there was going to be like a prefix and a suffix to every segment or block of of DNA, and that uh, you know it's it's kind of like Ethernet to some extent. The packets get lost, uh, but they're somewhere in the soup, so you can find them. I guess Uh, it's 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 pretty interesting. And replication of the actual packets or were was an important aspect of the, the DNA storage.
1: Yeah, I kind of felt bad for them, because they had to compress so much of that information down into the 20 minutes that they had to talk about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and, and I guess, as they say, it's kind of a good problem to have, because people were very interested in it. They were extremely right. curious about what was going on. They wanted to find out more. I guess it falls into the always leave them wanting more.
0: Kind exactly. Exactly. I, I thought it was a good session. They did a good job. The guy from Western Digital was pretty sharp. He understood what uh, he understood the storage aspects of it. He understood the the to some extent the biochemical aspects of it. So I mean, it was it was good. The guy we had on a couple years back, I, uh, Catalogic, was you know was yet another DNA storage vendor that was going after this thing. What surprised the hell out of me was they're at the gigabyte level. I, they they can store and retrieve a gigabyte of data pretty mm-hmm. easily today without too much of a problem. And they and they seriously think that terabytes on the horizon. And it's, it's, it's not that hard from what they're telling me, uh, which is pretty damn impressive from my perspective.
1: I agree. I agree. And I think one of the things that kind of scares me overall is that I'm rapidly getting to the point where I will not be able to understand how storage works anymore.
0: <laughs> uh, I think... Some of us are already there. Quite right. <laughs> frankly, Doctor J, I mean, we understand somewhat the protocols, but you know how it actually works under the covers. Nah, not as much. Yeah. Optane. Optane is, uh, you know, one of the things that you know it looked pretty interesting, but it wasn't clear what it actually did under the covers. But
1: yeah, and the the funny thing is, is that the Optane story itself is uh, is a, a kind of a. A you know, unique case study. I think we're going to find something out of a Harvard Business Review at some point in time. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to try yeah. to figure out you know what what went right and what went wrong there because I, I thought the technology was really quite um, quite amazing. So, yeah,
0: I, it was it was interesting. You know how Micron and 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 Intel kind of split up the technology end of it, and you know it's it. I I don't know if there was some restrictions on what Micron could do with the technology, whether they could, uh, you know, offer it to other vendors or not, probably not, but, you know, it could have been a little bit more open and maybe it would have made a different sort of uh, effect or impact on that. Yeah, we had got a
2: terabyte of the stuff in our lab and we played around with it. It was quite, uh, it was quite amazing. It was finding it was, a terabyte of Optane is pretty impressive. <laughs> Keith. Yeah, was, uh, well, you know, I, I know a couple of people at Intel, so uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was it was really fun to play around with. It was uh, really interesting to play with. It was the 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 concept, and it will, uh, for later days, like everything else is cache. It's memory tearing at the you yeah. know at, at the at the lowest level. And it kind of has me curious about some of the other topics at SNIA. And, you know, as we're kind of coming out of the fog of Optane, CXL is starting to become kind of the. That
0: was, yeah, it was a very prominent discussion. I mean, the other discussion at Storage Field Day 26 was the SDXI. You want to tell us a little bit about that, Dr. J.?
1: Oh, sure. So SDXI stands for the Smart Data Accelerator Interface, and it is a software-based DMA engine, data movement. And the reason why this becomes really important is that other hardware-based uh, move, uh, you know, uh, DMA engines are unfortunately not portable, right? You have very specific hardware-related uh, engines to, you know, to move data from one location to another. You know, I one mean, it was always
0: hardware-driven. To... I mean, it was the speeds and stuff like that required were pretty impressive, right? I mean, we're talking True. memory access, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, and and I think one of the things that's really kind of cool about SDXI is that not it's well, it's software-based for one thing. But the other the other issue is that um, you know you could run it um, on on any device that could you know run SDXI run the run the uh, you know the run the software based solutions there's no instruction set required there's no specific hardware set required you know basically if your hardware you know if your your hardware vendor creates something that has STX in it you could basically have your application address it and attach to it uh, to do some d- the memory movement now as far as functionality is concerned where things are really cool is that what it allows us to do is affect the application performance when memory access is required that you can't currently do. So let me let me give you a, a better example. Um, you are very familiar with containers, with virtualization, with the abstraction layers, and and we're getting further and further and further away from the hardware, right? Um, and, and that becomes a problem. Uh, because what happens is the application developers, they don't like the way that things are working. So they basically build another abstraction layer on top of it. I don't know if you've ever really traced how many different abstraction layers they are for metal as a service, but it gets really deep.
0: Yeah. And yeah. So- no, I've seen a couple of these things. It's, it's, uh, it's painful.
1: Yeah, exactly. So by the time you actually do all these translations to get memory to move from one location to another, um, let's say for example, you're doing storage virtualization just as a nice simple one, right? Um, you're, you're talking a pretty hefty latency element you know, to get that stuff coming back. Um, and so what winds up happening is that SDXI allows the application to directly call the hardware to move the data from one memory region to another memory region, and and effectively bypasses all of those abstraction layers. So you don't wind up having to worry about having to go through layer after layer after layer of memory abstraction and create all these different buffers. You really start to think about all the different buffering that has to go on for each of these different abstraction layers. It's just, it's enormous. So by being able to just simply say, move this data from this location to another location and have it accessible via a privileged software um, thread, you bypass a whole bunch of this latency inducing movements, uh, through these layers. I, I, you
0: see this operating across like uh, something like GPU Direct to move data from a storage device
1: to a GPU. I mean, so uh, it's no, it's not quite like that. So, the way that The way that um, GPU direct for storage works is it effectively avoids um, from one device to another device to bypass the round tripping that goes through multiple, um, multiple software layers of each of these different, um, let me me rephrase, let me try that again. It's a little bit different with GPU Direct because the way that GPU Direct works is that it doesn't require the GPU to call the CPU for controlling the movement between different devices. In other words, the CPU doesn't have to move
0: data directly from storage to GPU without having it be buffered in the CPU. That was my understanding of GPU Direct.
1: Yep. And and that winds up being, you know, the the big advantage to GPU direct, because you're you're not going up into the kernel for uh for, for that. So that's a that has to do with with avoiding the use of the CPU as a buffer for that memory movement. Right. What what so, SDXI allows us to do though is it allows us to use the CPU's that the, the application that's on the CPU to basically move into a different memory region uh as as required without having to go outside of the CPU or without through going through multiple memory buffers.
2: Keith? So from a practical perspective, you know, I have, you know, I'm, I'm a virtualization guy. I'm a, a, a traditional virtualization guy. And I'm, let's do a simple form of virtualization. We're uh, accessing storage via CNI from uh, Kubernetes. And that storage is being provided by a VM in your hypervisor. So mm-hmm. I'm going through the Linux kernel to access that and the Linux drivers to access that storage or memory. And then that machine, that host, that Kubernetes pod mm-hmm. uh, host is sitting on another VM that is yet on storage or on a VM that's uh, provided by storage to another Linux system that's using the file system to provide the storage so you know this is three layers of abstraction that the application developer has to go through to call memory so this capability doesn't necessarily bypass the linux kernel but necessarily p- bypasses the drivers so that i can call the storage directly from the hardware device the ultimate hardware device that's providing the 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 capability
1: well, this is more of a memory data mover than a than a block data mover. So we're not talking about LBAs in in the way that you know a, tra- a traditional storage device might be accessed via any bare metal or virtualized environment. So this is really how do we handle so the bypassing of the. Doctor Jay,
0: tell me what what a memory mover. What who who would do a memory mover? I mean, is I shared memory kinds of structures? Is that what you're thinking of? I mean.
1: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, Keith's, Keith's example of the virtualized environment is a really good one, or, you know, the, the, the container environment. So, in, in many different um, storage environments, you've got, um, you know, virtualized elements of the controllers that require, you know, the, the, the data to be moved from one uh, virtualized environment to another virtualized environment. So, let's say you just got two containers, right? And you, need, you, you basically want to move from an application container into a storage container. Uh, or you know, from an application which in a VM to a storage VM, right? So, what you what you'd have to do is you'd have to have the hypervisor do all that memory movement, which in and of itself is a virtualized environment from the actual abstracted actually from the storage. What we're looking to do here, and what we're talking about doing, is saying, all right, instead of instead of talking to the hypervisor, talking to you know the memory buffers, we're going to talk to the hardware because we're really just moving to these protected memory spaces so that the the information is the data is ac- accessible directly by um, the by the application and the virtualized environment. So, for instance, instead of writing zeros with the CPU into this environment, you could basically just call a SDXI routine to zero out that memory space. Right. So the work is actually done by the CPU uh, naturally without having to have all these different these different component parts, you know, uh, continue to move data from one buffer to another buffer.
2: So if I'm building a system, a tiered memory system, and I need to move memory from different tiers of storage, this would be a conduit for that and enables me to build my application across more platforms just as long as they support this protocol.
1: Correct. As a matter of fact, the the applications don't know any of this. I mean although basically what they're gonna do is they're gonna call the you know yeah, the yeah. calls and, and that's it.
2: Yeah, so if I'm if I'm if I'm working a Kubernetes project or a Kubernetes related product. Project. This is where I would build. I would build this capability into the platform that I'm building. So let's put some names behind this. If I'm OpenShift and I and I want to say, you know what, you want to run your applications faster across more multiple more of our cloud providers, we'll support this protocol so that you don't even as a developer you don't even have to worry about it. You just memory and uh, access and I/O is just faster on something like a open shift across different brands, whether it's AWS, uh, OCI or Azure, the it's at that level. So uh, the the you know application developer isn't calling may not call it, but the platform that they're using
1: may call it. Uh, that's speak. that's a good point. That's that, that, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, right? No, no, no. Answer Keith, please. I, I think um I think uh, you're, you're spot on. I mean, we haven't had that conversation yet with something like OpenShift, but um, I think part of, that, part of that is simply because of the fact that the SDXI protocol is so new, right? Um, but having having one of the abstraction layers that in between the storage and the application that can do this as high up to the application as possible uh, would definitely make life a lot easier for application developers, absolutely.
0: So just to be specific, this, this requires this provides, an this provides an API to moving memory within one system. It has; It's not across systems. That's correct. Uh, I mean, CXL and, and stuff like that could start having some sort of shared memory sorts of structures, and maybe your SDXI could potentially plug into a CXL memory tier that could be shared between systems. Yep. Where do you think we're working? Okay, so in that case, if you've got a shared memory structure or device out there on this PCI bus that's connected to two different systems or four, then you could use SDXI to move data from the shared memory to the local memory or vice versa. Yep.
2: Yeah, this gets to be really interesting as if done correctly and the integration is is done correctly. You know, we have, you know, uh, think of as a data center as a node Mm -hmm. and the interface to, you know, the, the app in application developers doesn't really care if the interconnects between the components of that data center is a node is CXL or any other protocol. All they know is that they're interfacing with, you know, let's again, pick on OpenShift. And then my friends at Red Hat are worrying about the SDXI interface and how that, uh, leverages the underlying hardware, which may be CXL based or some other network protocol.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, and so you know uh, it, it's worth it noting that to be a memory VMware and, and, and a couple of others are are part of the STXI group working on the, on the protocol.
0: But it's a memory protocol. It can't be a yeah. IO protocol. Sure. It can't be NFS or SMB
1: or no, 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 no. You're right. It's it's a it's a it's a memory protocol. As a matter of fact, it's what specifically the hell is the
0: Storage Networking yeah. Industry Association doing in memory, Doctor J?
1: Well, memory and storage have been on a collision course for a very long time. We talked about Optane earlier, right? And, and there are a lot of initiatives going on in, in both the memory world as well as a storage world that get into that fine layer of granularity. So we talked about the CXL just a moment ago, right? So, so the, the impact of, of computational storage put on as a node on a, on a CXL fabric, where you're gonna have a memory pool that's shared by multiple computational storage processors, for example, that's that's a collision between storage and memory. You can't develop each uh, each of those different things completely in isolation. It's really silly to try to think. That.
2: Yeah, and I, and I love there's an organization that's trying to tackle the complexity of abstraction. You know, the uh, we I've talked about this a lot is that we're building abstraction upon abstraction and upon abstraction, and these abstractions are moving way faster than the actual standards of the uh, uh, underlying hardware and the capability. And, it, you know, it feels like we're, you know, building, uh, you know, camp castles on sand.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is, we were talking earlier, making a slight joke about not not knowing how things work anymore. I, I do think that's actually kind of a a risk. And one of the things that we're trying to do at SNIA is, is uh, help with the education of this because it gets, it gets pretty convoluted pretty quickly if you're not, you know, Living this day in and day out, and that's what the storage developer conference is really supposed to be able to do. Um, but you know, we're now getting into the area that I find to be personally, I find very fascinating. Right, where where we are now, you know, for years I've been talking about the you know the accordion, the expansion and the contraction of of technology and how it kind of collapses upon itself and gets pulled out like a Holberman sphere and readjusted and brought back together again you know, where, what CXL allows us to do is, um, you know, what the promise of CXL allows us to do, I should say, is it allows us to think about, th- um, you know, the relationship between each of these different devices in not so strict a fashion. For years, it was compute, network and storage, right? And compute and memory were all part of the same thing. Well, networks got memory, storage has memory. And then we started talking about networks inside of the compute. Right. We've got, you know, AMD's got the infinity fabric nvidia has got the NV link and, and so on and so forth. And then you've got, you know, the compute in network compute that's going on there, which has its own memory functions. And you have the, the, the rich and robust virtualized storage environments that we've gotten for, for decades now that has been proved over time. It was only a matter of time before someone said, you know what, why are we Why are we, you know, doing all these things in isolation? Why can't I prevent the IO from happening altogether if it doesn't need to go there? And why can't I do more processing on the storage in situ? You know, why can't I do that? Well, we can. Okay, well, how do we get them to know that this stuff is happening over there so that I don't have to do it? Oh, well, that means we have new communication, you know, protocols that we have to do what if i don't have to pull it out of memory altogether what if i just process it right there in the memory as opposed to having to, to kind of store and then forward and buffer and all these kinds of things so all these work all this work is being done in nvme express it's being done in snia it's being done in cxl and all uh, the same people are saying well we know that these things have to be done here but they're not done in isolation so the work on you know nvme over cxl well what does that mean well First glance, it means block storage over CXL. No, it's not what it means because (laughs) NVMe is more than just block storage. NVMe has controller memory buffers. It has some host memory buffers. It has being able to process the NVMe commands on the local drives themselves. Well, that already exists and it's existed for years. Well, what if I were to do more processing than just NVMe commands and so on and so on and so on. If you've got a computational storage drive, for example, and a, that's a very limited, that's a memory bound and compute bound function that exists on a drive. What if I were to pull storage, acro- uh, pool the memory across a uh, a CXL fabric, so that that small drive which has that that bound f- resources can now access additional resources in memory? How do I access that? Well, I have to be able to call those commands using NVMe. Uh, just, just, using are you help. saying,
0: are you saying compute, computational storage would have a shared memory? Yeah,
2: well, yeah. I'm thinking. Uh, you know, if I, if you look I at, I it, it. look at my. I have an HPE 6000 with dual controllers. It has a a couple of AMD Epic processors in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking. I'm looking at this thing, and I'm looking at my external uh, uh, servers to it. And I'm thinking, why am I sending I/O requests to this extremely capable pod to come back? To compute, just to run on processors that's actually slower than what I actually have in my storage (laughs) array. So, the Uh, you know it gets to the point, and this becomes a question of orchestration of networks and I/O, etc. How do we build intelligent enough networks? where I can orchestrate where the compute runs? Why can't I have just have a couple of GPUs in my storage array? And if I'm not using a, if the process doesn't uh, need to use a ton of CPU, but it needs a ton of GPU, why send that stuff back, back out to my distributed compute and now I have to worry about where, you know, how to orchestrate that IO and in, 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 in the application logic? Why can't I just run it closest to where the data is at? Because data has gravity and the it is a fascinating computational compute for me or storage is a fascinating area.
0: He's not just talking computational storage. He's talking computational memory.
2: Well, yes. and, that, that, and and again, it's the this is why it's because it's the same problem, in my opinion. Uh. It is, how do you get the I.O. to the compute as fast as possible I'd say or well. as efficient as possible at the right I.O. profile?
1: data. We're talking data. Yeah, well, and that's where, you know, that goes back to your original question, Ray, which is, you know, SNIA is about data. You know, we, we're about protecting data, moving data, storing data. We're, we're, we're It's about data. And and we, we're we not so arrogant as to think that we have all the answers. On the contrary, we, we know that there are many different facets that have to be addressed. So we're focusing on working with these other organizations to ensure that the industry itself can solve these particular problems without having to, you know, reinvent the wheel every single time. Because quite frankly, you know, the CXL group is now dealing with concepts that storage is addressed for decades over subscription, fan in ratios, those kinds of things. And, and working together allows us to learn from each other's past experiences because, you know, that that's, what's going to allow us to, to put the right tools for the job in the right place.
0: I would say the other thing that you know, and I was thinking about this long as we started talking about this. There's security implications of SDXI are pretty intensive. I mean, you have you know these guys out there snooping cloud memory, you know, to try to find passwords and stuff like that. And having something like SDXI in in this space. Is that going to increase the security exposure? I guess that's the and That's
1: a really good point. So security in SDXI was built in from the ground up. Um, and I, I didn't cover it here because it's one of those things. Actually, hang on a second. Things are starting to get a little noisy. Let me start over. I'm really glad you brought that up because we, we didn't talk about it because it gets a little bit more involved, but security was built into SDXI from the ground up. So all of these things about data movement have to go through a pre-process of establishing privileges for being able to handle this. And then there are checks and balances along the way to ensure that that security hasn't been uh, breached. But it goes into some detail that's a little bit more involved that I feel comfortable talking about Um yeah. But, uh, and it also would take a little bit more extra time. But it is built in from the from the word go.
2: So my, I have to assume stuff like encryption uh, even before the data is transferred, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the idea is that uh, uh, data uh, at rest, data in motion, and the uh, authentication of the uh, uh, even ability to put – pick up data and put it somewhere is, is a consideration.
1: Yeah. So that's a multi-stage process, right? So you've got the, you've got the setup of the, of the DMA movement, and then you've got the actual movement itself. As it turns out, um, when you, when you have the, the privileges set up, uh, in advance, that's before any data gets moved at all. And then when you have the data movement, one of the things that could happen in the process is the data could be mutated. It could be encrypted along the way. It could be decompressed or compressed along the way. Um, there's a there's a whole other element of STXI that you know we just haven't had a chance to get into. Yeah, um, I just gave one example about you know bypassing all those layers of abstraction. But STXI is a very robust uh, data mover, with security implications um, taken into consideration.
2: So Ray, this is just all always go out to my premise. All all storage is just a bunch of networking. <laughs> uh, no, it's not.
0: <laughs> networking can drop packets. Storage cannot drop bytes.
1: I'm gonna let you guys fight that one out. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> there's
0: nothing to fight. He knows he knows as well as I do. You can't yeah, well, that's a different discussion. I just want to say for the record, I, I coded a, a a DMA interrupt handling program back in the 70s, 80s, maybe, it took approximately 127 microseconds to do the interrupt and the and DMA interrupt occurred every 128 microseconds. So <laughs> doing DMA in software is tough.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: It's not easy. Yeah. And, and time constraints are very severe here.
1: Yeah. And as, as it turns out, you know, it's, it's not a perfect tool for everything right? No nothing is. I don't want to give the wrong impression that we have suddenly come up with a panacea for data movement, right? Because every time, every time you do something in software, you have increased the overhead all the time, right? It, it takes, you know, for every, for every virtual bit, you have to have a physical bit. Yeah. And in software, if a software-based approach is, is going to be useful for, for certain things like portability, chaining functionality, that kind of things that may wind up um, you know, uh, be more advantageous in software if you've got large transfers, um, and then small transfers, small data movements, small DMA uh, might be you know much more appropriate for hardware-based engines. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I mean, we're not trying to say that this is a this is a uh, a solution that's going to do away with all hardware-based solutions. That's just just silly. It's like it's like the tape is dead argument. Anybody who yeah. says that doesn't know anything about tape. And
2: this goes back to kind of my serious argument that the higher level abstractions are actually moving faster than even something like this infrastructure focused protocol and data mover. You know, I have friends who are just been hired on to AWS to, to continue to add features to S3. So, you know, we're dealing and then the industry as a whole has to catch up uh, to S3 as a capability across these new capabilities across their products as well. So, you know, it's it's a uh, it's it, it's an exciting area that 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 just continues to to move faster than any of us can individually follow.
1: Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why Sia is so, you know, uh, so valuable, you know, because of the fact that it's a place where you can find those people who are passionate about the stuff that you may not be, but you need, right? So um, I am nowhere near as, as impassioned about the DNA data storage uh, from a professional perspective. Intellectually, I am, I'm curious, I, yeah. I'm a curious person. Yeah. Um, but when you, when you talk to the people in the, the DNA data storage Alliance, for example, wow, they're just, they're really into it. You know they're really, really into it. It's the same way. It's the same way for green, right? Energy efficiency. It's more of an intellectual, academic pursuit for me. Um, uh, but the people who are really involved in it, and thank God they're there, because yeah. if I need yeah. to ask the question, I can go ask a question. That's that's what you know. Having this kind of collegiality is so critical, and why the storage developer conference was so important because people who are really, truly, honestly curious can go talk to the people directly who are passionate and, and you know and understand what's going on. Right, and the, right. the level of conversation at the conference is just phenomenal. You can go on YouTube and you can you can see the SNEA videos. That's right, actual right. The, the, the channel, right? SNEA, uh, SNEA video is the channel on YouTube. And you can see the specific presentations that are done and give you a taste of it. But the birds of a feather conversations, the hallway conversations, the being able to talk to the people who write the code, you know, uh, that's that's intense, man. I mean, you know, you, you sit down and you talk to the people who are writing the actual code, the protocols, and they can tell you why these things were done, and you know what the what the threats are that you never even thought of in a million years. Yeah, I, I did yeah. not know that that was a that was going to be an issue. Ah, oh, yes, but that it is. It is. It is.
0: All right. Listen, gents, this has been great. Keith, any last questions for uh, Dr. J?
2: Not that I would actually understand the answers, so you know, <laughs> we, we have him on for a specific reason.
0: All right. Dr. J, is
1: there anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? Um, actually, yeah, there is. There's one. Um, first of all, I want I to thank you both. Um, Our pleasure. I, I, I honestly, you know, you know, whenever I, whenever I do my short takes on, on the blog, I always, always, always look to your blogs, your, your, um, presentations, your podcasts. Um, and I know that you've done a phenomenal service and just wanted to truly thank you both for all the hard work you put into, you know, opening up this stuff to the audience.
0: Oh, we appreciate it. Thank you. Wow, okay. Well, okay. That's it for now. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. J., for being on our show today. Well, thank you for having me. And that's it. That's it for now. Bye, Dr. J., bye, Keith, and bye, Ray. <laughs> Until next time. Next time, we will talk to the system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out.